time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome to this Wednesday edition of the Tom Sumner Program. That uh, means, of course, armchair politics is coming up in about an hour. And we'll have uh, Mark Everson, a former high-ranking government official in two presidential administrations, joining our roundtable regulars, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter will have two hours of commentary and analysis about local, um, state, and national headlines from the world of politics and current events. And speaking of current events, of course, uh, a lot of people are tuning in to watch uh, Ketanji uh, Brown Jackson. Um, as she faces her uh, confirmation uh, interviews with the U.S. Senate. And uh, that reminded me, and it seemed kind of appropriate to uh, pull back from uh, a pre-pandemic release by radio host Tom Hartman. Um, He's also a New York Times bestseller, and he has a series that he does, The Hidden History Of. And I thought uh, maybe it'd be fun to bring back his... uh, the Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America with Tom Hartman. Straight ahead. And my guest this hour is the author of... uh, He's a New York Times bestseller. He's written over 25 books. Uh, He is a national and internationally syndicated talk show host and author. His new book is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Tom Hartman joins me now by phone. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Um, Now, you're talking about the Supreme Court as betraying America. In, In what way do you draw that conclusion? Well, there's there's a couple of, of betrayals. Um, one is the uh, is the Supreme Court taking on to itself uh, a power that most of the framers, not all, but most of the framers of the Constitution did not believe it should have um, uh, the power of judicial review. And the other is uh, how a series of uh, or how over a period of time from the 1970s. Until today, uh, a very well-funded right-wing a group of right-wingers, mostly billionaires, 
um, made sure that they got Republicans into the White House, even committing crimes to do so, in order to continuously be packing the Supreme Court to get to get us to essentially where we are now, where you've got a court that um, will be, you know, dancing to a right wing tune in a way that we haven't seen since the Lockett Court. But this certainly uh, isn't um, a new concept of trying to pack the court. FDR tried to pack the court by even increasing the number of justices. Um, but it's it's always been kind of a political process in how the judges are selected. Well, the judges are, are appointed by the president and then, you know, ratified essentially uh, by, by the Senate. Um, and that's always been the case from the very beginning. But it's really only since the... Um, since the late 1880s, uh, or, or maybe the late 1870s until today, that it that the court has been a relatively blunt political instrument, and it's really only been since the 1960s, um, really the 1970s. I would say it started with Lewis Powell's memo in '71, that an entire political party and a, a very very large, very very well funded infrastructure has been brought to bear almost exclusively on the process of packing the court. And we're seeing the peak of that right now with Mitch McConnell denying uh, Barack Obama and you know, basically any federal judges for three years um, to the point where John Roberts wrote a letter to, the, to, the, uh, to Mitch McConnell saying that we now have a judicial crisis. Um, uh, this, this was while Obama was still president. And then, of course, refusing to even consider Merrick Garland from the Supreme Court. This is a, a long-lasting project. With regard to packing the court, um, yeah, the, the, the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2, says that the court shall operate under exceptions defined by Congress and under regulations defined by Congress. And the, the general understanding of regulations is, you know, how many members are on the court, where the court meets, when the court meets, what the court's budget is, uh, what its term is, things like that. And... We've seen that change as a consequence of legislative action over the years. Congress defines that, um, you know, technically by a simple majority in the House and Senate. I mean, it is possible a filibuster could be involved, but the Constitution just says simple majority. And so, you know, when the court first started out, it had uh, five members, then it went to seven members, then it went to ten members. Uh, when Abbott Lincoln was assassinated, uh, Andrew Johnson, his vice president, was so insanely unpopular. I mean, just widely hated across the United States. He was a slave owner. He bragged about the fact that uh, his favorite slave he had bought when she was 13, she bore him three children. Um, Lincoln had put him on the ticket for his second term as a way to uh, try to heal the nation, you know, have a Southerner on the ticket. It was a terrible mistake. And when Lincoln was assassinated, Andrew Johnson became president. And, and Congress, which at that time was dominated by by you know the, the remnants of the union the republican party the the northerners both the house and the senate uh, did not want to take any chance at all that andrew johnson might put another person on the court and so they passed legislation in the first months after johnson became president that reduced the number of members of the court down to six and uh so johnson didn't you know just in case anybody died and so johnson didn't have a chance to put anybody on the court and uh uh, just a few months after Johnson left office, as Ulysses S. Grant came in, an anti-slavery Republican, um, the Congress met again and raised the court, the number of members of the court back up to or back up to nine, which is where it stands today. 
um, with regard to Franklin Roosevelt's effort, um, he was, uh, you know, many of your contemporary histories, uh, particularly the ones that have been rewritten by right-wing think tanks, like you'll find on Wikipedia, suggest that it was a very unpopular thing that, tr- that uh, FDR tried to do in 1937 and that he probably wouldn't have succeeded. The reality is that, uh, you know, when, when FDR came in and passed a child labor law, which the Supreme Court struck down, passed a minimum wage law that the Supreme Court struck down, passed, passed a uh, unemployment insurance law that the Supreme Court struck down, and, and a number of other things, there was widespread rage across the country. Um, the, the American people were furious about this. FDR was as well. And when he got reelected in 1937 and, and again still had an overwhelming Democratic majority in the House and Senate, um, he, he using that Article Three, Section 2 power to regulate the number of people on the court, in this case for political purposes, just like had been done with Andrew Johnson, um, he said what we're going to do is we're going to take all the justices who are over 70 and give them one collective vote, call them Justices Emeritus. So they're still on the court. We're not kicking them off the bench. But in, in aggregate, there were five of them at the time. They all, they all together have one vote. And then we'll add four more members to bring it back up to nine votes. Um, that was actually widely popular, and, and it was expected that that was going to pass. And what happened was the uh, National Recovery Act was coming up before the court. Actually, there were a number of them. The big one, actually, was uh, uh, Social Security uh, was going to be before the court in the 1937 uh, docket, and uh, which is what provoked FDR you know, to, to, to try to stop the court. And uh, Francis Perkins, the Secretary of Labor, had a long talk with the wife of Justice Owens, who was one of, they called them the four horsemen, these, these four judges who were constantly um, uh, working against FDR's New Deal. And uh, she convinced Owens to change his vote. And uh, he did that. And then Justice Roberts, who was his big you know, colleague on the court in, in fighting FDR, changed his vote as well. And suddenly uh, public opinion turned from basically hating the court and hating these four guys uh, to, to being you know, relatively benign or supportive of them. And at that point, FDR dropped his court packing plan. But, you know, you read the histories that were written in the 40s, 50s, even early 60s, there was a broad consensus that FDR would have been successful in his court packing scheme. Has it always... uh, Have the justices throughout history um, had the the kind of uh, political leanings that justices seem to now... This idea of we have, you know, a 5-4 court or um, we have that same situation uh, at the state Supreme Court in Michigan um, where you have conservative justices and liberal justices. Right. You know, there have always been ideologues on the court going all the way back to the very beginning. Um, But the court had... um, or took on uh, massively, wildly less power to itself in the first 70, 80 years of the United States. Um, The court began becoming uh, aggressively corrupted in the 1870s, late 1870s, early 1880s, when uh, Reconstruction started to fail as a result of the Andrew Johnson presidency, and uh, in part. 
And um, that was the point at which uh, presidents and the Senate started looking at members of the court as instruments of essentially lawmaking of legislation or law breaking, striking down legislation. Um, this all goes to the issue of, of, uh, of judicial review. Judicial review is the, is the power or the ability of a court to decide that a law which has been passed by a legislature and signed by an executive, the president or the governor, um, that that law does not comport with the Constitution, that that law is unconstitutional and therefore strike it down. The, the Constitution does not provide explicitly for judicial review. Um, the people who are advocates of judicial review say that, you know, there's a provision, the, the constitutional supremacy provision of the Constitution, which says that the, the Constitution itself shall be the supreme law of the land, and therefore that's the filter through which everything has to be interpreted. But this was very, very controversial. In the, uh, in the early days uh, of the court, you know, from 1789, when the court was formed and, until 1803, uh, the court never used that power. They didn't strike down any laws. They didn't try to write any laws. They were basically, uh, you know, the two functions of the court that are defined in Article Three. Uh, number one, they were the, the, the original jurisdiction, the place where states would adjudicate disputes between themselves or the federal government with other governments or, in some cases, maritime law. And then the second function of the court, which is to be the court of final appeal, the, the place where when all is said and done and, you, and you've exhausted every appeal, the buck has to stop someplace, and that's the Supreme Court. And that's it, all they did. As it, but in 1803, uh, John Marshall, go ahead. I was just going to ask, that because there's this sort of impression of the court that it is the arbiter between the other two branches of government. Was that always so, or is that a fairly contemporary phenomenon? It, it, well, that's that's the change that happened in 1803, and um, and it didn't really have a great deal of impact uh, until 1856, and it didn't start having a major impact until the 1870s, when the court began being corrupted by mostly by the big railroad corporations, um, who were kind of the Microsofts of the day, the U.S. Steels of the day, and the way it, the way it happened was um, uh, when John Adams was president. Um, he in, in, he was president from, uh, from the election of 1896 until the election of 1800. And um, in 1898, he pushed through Congress the Alien and Sedition Act, which produced a, a, a violent uh, or metaphorically violent uh, schism between him and Thomas Jefferson. And um, the result of that was that they literally for the next two years did not speak to each other. They would not be in the same room even though Jefferson was vice president and Adams was president. And in the election of 1800, uh, Adams ran for re-election and Jefferson ran against him and Jefferson won. And so the, the Adams' final act on his way out of office, the last thing he did, his giant you know, uh, middle finger to Thomas Jefferson, was he appointed as chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Thomas Jefferson's third cousin, John Marshall, who was also one of his bitterest political enemies. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. I'm talking with uh, author and talk show host Tom Hartman about his new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Tom, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Um, you want me to pick up where I left off? I can recap real quickly. Yeah, yeah, if we could. And my apologies that uh, I, I was so enthralled with what you were saying. I wasn't watching the clock close enough, so we had to jump out kind of abruptly. No, yeah, no, it's all good. I get I get live radio. Um, I do it, in fact. So, <laughs> so what was going on was um, uh, John Marshall... Uh, there was this case called Marbury versus Madison, and it was a lawsuit against uh, uh, James Madison, who was Jefferson's Secretary of State. And uh, in that decision, in, in the decision in Marbury versus Madison, John Marshall re- reached back to the law that essentially created the Supreme Court, the Judiciary Act of 1797 or 1789, and said uh, struck down part of the law, the part of the law that said that uh, you know in order for a judge to become a judge, it had be physically delivered to him. Um, because he struck down the law, President Thomas Jefferson went absolutely nuts. He was like, you know, if the judges are able to strike down laws that have been passed by the, by the ones elected by the people, the House and the Senate, and, and the president, and signed by the president, then become the despotic branch of government. Uh, he wrote a letter to Abigail Adams saying, under this construction, the, the Constitution has become a thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary. He wrote a letter to who was Patrick Henry's uh, uh, father-in-law and one of his closest friends. And he said, uh, under, this, under this decision, John Marshall has turned the Constitution into a fellow disea, which is Latin for a suicide pact. Um, the point that he made is that you can either have a democratic republic where the people rule, or you can have a, a constitutional monarchy where, you know, the people have a lot of say, but at the end of the day, there's a monarch who has the final say. And what John Marshall had done is, in 1803 is he had converted America from a democratic republic into a constitutional monarchy where the monarchs were the, the then seven members of the Supreme Court. And um, he was so outraged by this, and, and much of America was so outraged by this, that even though John Marshall served as Chief Justice longer than any other man in the history of the United States, he never again did that. He never again uh, used judicial review to strike down a law that had been passed by Congress. The second time that happened was in 1856, when uh, Chief Justice Roger Taney uh, decided that he would once and for all solve the slavery problem, and in a case called Dred Scott v. Sanford, uh, ruled that regardless of where they lived in the United States, slave state or free, all people of color were property and not persons. And that, of course, led us straight to the Civil War. So in the first 70, 80 years of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court only used judicial review twice and burned their fingers both times and burned the whole country both times quite badly. And uh, it wasn't until the 18, as I said earlier, it wasn't until the 1870s, 1880s, that the court started using judicial review on a relatively routine basis. Even then, though, it was fairly rare. By the 1920s, they started doing it far more frequently, uh, the Lochner Court being the, the, the example that most people are familiar with, you know, striking down child labor laws and whatnot. And, um, and now that's pretty much all the court does is uh, judicial review. 
which really kind of makes Jefferson's prophecy that we were going to move from a constitutional uh, democracy, a democratic republic, to a constitutional monarchy uh, prescient. You know, it's come true now. And so now we have to deal with the fact that, you know, we have nine unelected kings and queens who have final say over absolutely everything and can even literally write law from scratch in, in the in the uh, Roe v. Wade decision and in the uh, in the subsequent uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, they actually came up with the idea of three separate trimesters in pregnancy. That's clearly a legislative uh, job, you know, defining uh, the parameters around which different laws are applied, and yet the Supreme Court did it. So uh, we have a real a judicial crisis right now, and and one that and this is you know recognizing this. This is why there's been this 40-year campaign by very, very wealthy uh, special interests and corporate interests to seize control of the federal judiciary and in particular the Supreme Court. And when you talk about judicial review, is that um, the same thing as interpreting the Constitution? Yes. Yeah. Judicial review is, uh, well, in fact, uh, to, to, to give you an example, um, when uh, when Jefferson went off on his Jeremiah against uh, against John Marshall and and the Marbury decision, one of his friends wrote him a letter saying, "Well, you know, if, if the Supreme Court isn't the final arbiter of what the, what is constitutional and what is not, who is?" And right. Simply, the people themselves. He pointed out that that you know the entire House of Representatives is up for re-election every two years. All spending has to originate in the House. All taxes have to originate in the House. All laws have to originate in the House. All wars have to originate in the House. And therefore, if the people don't like a law, uh, you know, and they think it's not constitutional, they'll throw the bums out and replace them with other bums. And, you know, I've had people say to me, well, what if the president was to, you know, or Congress was to push through a law saying that the president could throw somebody in jail for insulting him? And my response is, that's exactly what happened in 1798 with, with the Alien Sedition Act that John Adams got. First thing he did was throw Ben, ben Franklin's grandson in prison for writing an editorial calling, ben, calling John Adams old, toothless, querulous, and balding. And, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin Bach even lost his newspaper, the Aurora in Massachusetts. And that was not solved by the Supreme Court striking that law down as unconstitutional. It was solved by the election of 1800, sweeping jefferson's democratic party in and sweeping out the federalists and of course the law then got changed is there it it always seems tom that 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 the supreme court follows trends that you know it was uh um whatever seems to be the hot button issue of the day the supreme court weighs in is that a, well a product yeah, of this judicial review say we want to decide something no but based on the Sorry. the things that they pick you know when they decide to take a case yeah, the cases that are brought before them they choose the ones they want yeah Yeah, they, you know, increasingly they have been dealing with the hot button issues because they, they have, um, I mean, for example, when, when Obamacare was passed, uh, you know, the, the next question after it passed the Senate and was signed by the president wasn't, 
gee, when do we all start getting health care? It was, what's the Supreme Court going to say? You know, we've got to turn this over to the kings and queens and decide if it's going to be a law or not. Um, and, and this, you know, again, goes back to that statement of Jefferson's. You've got to decide, do you want to have a democratic republic or do you want to have a constitutional monarchy? And, and because the court has all this power now, I mean, they, they, it really is the most powerful branch of government, which is absolutely not what the founders and framers envisioned. Um, because it's the most powerful branch of government, they've felt quite, quite uh, content to take some of the most contentious issues and decide on them. Now, you uh, talk about in your uh, in this book, um, and I don't want to get too far away from from the Supreme Court, but I I can't pass on what's going on right now because of the possibility that uh, we could see John Roberts presiding over a uh, a Senate trial um, in the impeachment of President Trump potentially. Um, you talk about William Barr and his role in the Iran Contra cover-up. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't. I, I I don't know how I missed it, Tom, but I didn't realize William Barr had been the Attorney General before. Yeah, under George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't remember that, or or it passed me by somehow. Yeah. So this is not his first time being attorney general, and w- anything that he's done or is doing or will do should be somewhat predictable. Yeah, tragically. Um, what happened in 1992 was after, uh, well, first of all, it started a number of years earlier, uh, Congress authorized a special prosecutor to look into the Iran-Contra crimes uh, to find out whether uh, the Reagan campaign, specifically its campaign manager, Bill Casey, had cut a deal with the Iranians to hold the hostages in 1980 to make Jimmy Carter look bad so that Reagan would become president. Um, whether, you know, whether they were illegally selling weapons to the Contras, whether they were illegally smuggling cocaine back into the United States, that whole spectrum of stuff that we collectively know of as Iran-Contra. And Lawrence Walsh was a respected prosecutor, and he was put in charge of that investigation. And by uh, 1992, uh, November of 92, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush lost the election to Bill Clinton, uh, who would be sworn in in January of 1993. And so Christmas Eve 1992, Lawrence Walsh was closing in and he was closing in on George Herbert Walker Bush. And um, he had already obtained convictions against Ollie North, against uh, uh, Casper Weinberger, against Elliot Abrams. And he was on the verge of convictions of several other people. And um, uh, the one last piece that he wanted to get, which would have allowed him to begin prosecution of George Bush himself, was uh, George Bush's diary, his campaign diary. And he had subpoenaed that, and Bush was fighting the subpoena. Um, but Bush was about to leave office, to lose, to lose his office. And once he no longer had the power of the presidency, he would not have been able to fight that subpoena. So Bush turned to Bill Barr and said, what do I do? And Bill Barr said, if you pardon all these guys that Lawrence Walsh has convicted and pardon the guys that he's in the process of convicting, then he will no longer have people who can testify against you, and that will kill the entire investigation. 
And that's exactly what uh, George Bush did. And uh, on Christmas Eve, if you you have a New York Times subscription, you can just look at the front page of the New York Times from December 24th, 1992, and you'll see this screaming all caps headline across the top. Um, you know, special prosecutor shut down, you know, and Iran-Contra investigation shut down, special, special prosecutor cries cover-up. Um, but, you know, Bill, Bill Barr did it, and uh, the cover-up shut down the investigation. Bill Clinton came into office. Uh, you know, at that point, there was, uh, they had lost most of their evidence. They had lost their case, and so he just moved on, and George Bush got away with it. Now, this is a little, uh, uh, again, off uh, off topic, but um, what what are your thoughts about the uh, about the status of of all of this impeachment talk? It's it's real interesting, Tom. We're we're in a very different time right now than we were in 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 the 1990s, uh, or for that matter, uh, you know, uh, the 1990s being the Clinton impeachment, 1997, or or 98, I guess it was. Or, you know, 1974, when, when Nixon went through impeachment proceedings in, in order to avoid the, the final vote, uh, resigned. Um, they didn't have Fox News back then. And neither Nixon nor Clinton, uh, well, let me rephrase that. Both Nixon and Clinton respected the rule of law. They were, you know, they were both willing to break the law. Clinton lied under oath. Nixon took two two bribes, a half million dollar bribe, a million dollar bribe, and and you know uh, broke into the DNC looking for dirt on the Democrats. Um, they were willing to break the law, but they ultimately, at the end of the day, they felt that what was best for the country was more important. Um, you know, when push came to shove, than what was best for them. And so, you know, Nixon actually turned over the tapes when he was due by the Supreme Court, um, even though uh, Roger Stone had strongly advised him to to burn them. Uh, which he could have done. Uh, I mean, it would have been illegal, but he could have, he probably could have gotten away with it. So uh, now we've got a guy in the White House who probably would burn the tapes. Uh, we have no idea how much evidence has been destroyed. For example, conversations Vladimir Putin, and uh, and not only that, he's he's now going after his accusers, Trump is, and suggesting that it's perfectly fine for him to solicit bribes or to offer bribes rather to, uh, in the first case, to the president of Ukraine, and now, uh, more recently, to the president of China. Um, I don't think we've ever seen this level of lawlessness in our history. And, um, and, and frankly, I mean, there are, there are people speculating um, that had Fox News been in existence, had, had Rupert Murdoch corrupted our media the way he did Australia's and the United Kingdom's first, um, to the point where Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, said that Rupert Murdoch is the cancer at the heart of Australian democracy. Had Fox News been around in 74, Nixon may well not have been impeached. But interesting, we'll interestingly, and, and in carrying that uh, comparison uh, out a little further, um, if the same circumstances uh evolve in this impeachment uh, potential for Donald Trump, I, I don't see Trump resigning uh, the way that yeah. Nixon I mean, did. This is, this is another one of the big questions is, you know, if, if he gets, if, if Trump gets nailed, you know, is, will he actually leave office? Pardon the noise, I'm at the airport. Um, 
uh, you know, how, how's this going to play out? And, and uh, you know, nobody really knows. I mean, the guy is so unpredictable and so lawless. It's totally bizarre. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to be for interesting television watching, if nothing else, Tom. Well, yeah, when William Rehnquist presided over the Senate trial um, in the Clinton impeachment, he didn't he didn't really do much i mean there there wasn't much of a role for him to play um do you see yeah. john roberts his, in there you know, his clerk at the time was john roberts do you think john roberts would uh conduct himself the same way or given the way that the the supreme court has evolved over time do you see him playing a different role and maybe using some procedural things to change the way things uh, change outcomes potentially because there doesn't seem to be any love lost between the chief justice and the president. Yeah. I'm not sure anybody knows. I mean, you know, this is, this is, uh, uh, it's, it's just so bizarre and unpredictable because Trump himself is so bizarre and unpredictable. Um, you know, I'm, I, I think the probably the worst thing that could happen would be if he were impeached and he refused to leave office, I, you know, obviously he would be removed, physically removed from office. But, um, you know, the, the other possibility, you know, at, at the time that he was running for president, he was working on two business deals, which he expecting to lose the election. He was in the process of basically closing on. One was, well, he, the, the Trump Tower of Moscow hadn't come to the point of closing, but they had signed a letter of agreement. And uh, the other was he was going to start a television network to compete with Fox News, uh, you know, a, a farther right than Fox News television network. And he wanted to be his own Roger Ailes, basically, and also have his own show. And it uh, wouldn't surprise me at all if, if when Trump leaves office, if he, if he doesn't get frog marched off to jail, that uh, he's going to he's going to do those two things. He's going to continue with that process, and that Trump Tower of Moscow would be big, the biggest project he'd ever done in his life. It would be a billion dollar project. It would make him very very rich, and that may well be why he's constantly kowtowing to to uh, to the needs and wants of of, uh, of Mr. Putin. It's but who knows? Uh, it, how much different is the stuff that we're hearing about now that's coming out about? Like the the telephone conversation with uh, uh, the the uh, president of Ukraine, how much different is that than the stuff that was in uh, Volume Two of the Mueller report? Well, the Mueller the Volume Two of the Mueller report was uh, dealt with the the attempts to, to cover up the hundred and forty some odd contacts between Russians, Russian oligarchs, and the Trump campaign in volume one. And uh, Mueller identified 10 explicit, uh, definable attempts to suborn justice, to, to, to uh, obstruct justice. Uh, he just didn't recommend prosecution because the Department of Justice and during the Nixon administration, um, the Office of Legal Counsel ruled that you can't indict a sitting president. You have to wait until he leaves office because he's, his job is so important and he's so busy all the time that you don't want to screw up the functioning of the federal government. Now, I, I think you could argue that that logic no longer applies with a guy who spends literally a third of his time on his own golf courses, but still, that's the, that's the way that the Justice Department's interpreting the law. 
Well, but, um, far be it from uh, me to recommend people interrupt a ahead. golf game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but 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 that's the position and and um uh you know where we're going to go with this is just it's just so up in the air right now. It's, it's hard to know. There's um, an interesting question on the uh, on the back of your book, the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Who should rule? Is it possible to get back to what you assert were the original atten- intentions of uh, the Constitution and the framers um, with regard to the Supreme Court, or is this? Uh, um, it's just impossible to get the toothpaste back in the tube. That's a good question, too. There was, um, back in the 1980s... Oh, and by the way, I, I just to, to close out my, my answer to your last question, um, this is the first time in the history of the United States that a president has been accused of trying to collude with a foreign government. During the um, the election of 18, uh, 1896 and the election of eighteen. 18- excuse me, 1796 in the election of 1800, um, there were people who hated John Adams in 1796 because he had defended the soldier, the British soldier who killed Atticus Finch and a few other people in the Boston Massacre, um, and they thought he was loyal to Britain. Um, when, when Jefferson, in, in the election of 1800, because he had been our U.S. envoy to France for years uh, and was, spoke fluent French, loved France, French wines, French food, uh, they were concerned that he had a loyalty to France. But those were just basically rumors, and, you know, there was no there there. This is the first time we've actually seen a president collude with a foreign power for his own political purposes. So, um, but to, what was your last question? I'm sorry. Uh, whether or not it was impossible oh, to get the toothpaste back in the tube, back in the tube. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in 19... 19- uh, in 1980, I forget which year, it's in the book, but during the Reagan administration, um, Reagan, uh, want, the Reagan administration wanted to, uh, to accomplish two things um, uh, above all else. They wanted to repeal the Brown versus Board of Education 1954 decision, which ended legal segregation in the United States, and they wanted to repeal the Roe v. Wade decision that gave women the right to have an abortion. And so the Reagan Justice Department uh, hired a young lawyer uh, and, you know, gave him an office in the Justice Department and said, okay, you figure out how to do this. Uh, doing a constitutional amendment will take too long, um, so we need a fairly quick process that can be done Tom, with a Republican-controlled House, Senate, and White House. Tom, how I, do we do it? I, I, I and, hate to, um, Tom, I hate to stop you there, ahead. but we're uh, coming up on another break. Can you stick around and talk for a few more minutes? Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I, I know yeah. you're tight. I know you're at an airport. That's why I ask. And and I don't want to get cut off again. No, um, no, it's all good. We are going to take a, uh, a yeah, short break good. and we'll be back with more with my guest, Tom Hartman, New York Times bestselling author and the author of a new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Stay tuned. <music>
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health plan. Quiplet Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. 
This is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is uh, the author of a new book called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. He's a New York Times bestselling author and a uh, uh, an award-winning uh talk show radio host uh, syndicated nationally and internationally Tom Hartman Tom thanks for sticking around appreciate it oh it's my pleasure Tom it's great to be on the radio in Michigan I was born in Grand Rapids I grew up in Lansing I lived in Detroit I haven't lived in Genesee County but I, I love Michigan hey the um well, I was surprised you didn't mention the UP. Most people from from Michigan end up saying something about the I UP. I actually, well, I lived in the UP for one summer, yeah, up in, um, oh, geez, uh, Newberry. Lived in Newberry. Oh, okay. All right, that's not, uh, let's see, that's not too far from uh, Tequamanon Falls, I think. Yeah, uh, it's uh, in the Cherokee National Forest, or right up against it. We were. Ta- I, was, I was. In fact, I was uh, the uh, station manager for WNBY in Newberry. Well, just before we uh, went to break, we were nineteen years old. Twenty. Um, just before we went to break, we were trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube and get the uh, Supreme Court to operate the way it was originally intended. But there was something you said in the last segment that I wanted to pick up on because you said this was the first time that we were dealing with a president who uh, had uh, colluded with uh, a foreign leader to impact an American election. And I... I wonder if if maybe the same couldn't be said about candidate Ronald Reagan and Iran. Yes, well, the problem is that hasn't been proven. But, you know, there's a fair amount of evidence to that effect. And President Bonnie Sauter, who was the president of Iran in 1980 during the time that Reagan was running for president, um, has said explicitly, and you can read it in, in Christian Science Monitor, actually did some of the best reporting on this. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Bonnie Sauter said that the Reagan campaign reached out to the, the Ayatollahs and said, if you guys will hang on to the hostages until Reagan becomes president, we'll make sure that you get your weapons. Uh, because the entire Iranian military at that time was American weaponry. It was, you know, the Shah of Iran was our guy. And they were running out of spare parts. It was, you know, a year and a half, two years into the Iranian Revolution. And uh, and, and Reagan apparently agreed um, during the election in the late summer of 1980, uh, we were transshipping through Israel uh, tires, F- F-15 tires to, uh, to Iran. And then, of course, after Reagan got elected, we started sending them missiles and other things. Um, so, yeah, that would be the actually the first time, but there's not an absolute consensus that that actually happened. Congress looked into it. Uh, they didn't conclude that Reagan was innocent or that his campaign was innocent. They concluded that they could no longer find the evidence to determine one way or the other because uh, so much of it had been burned, buried, or and a, and a number of people had died. Uh, Barbara Honiger wrote a great book about this called October Surprise, if you want more information on it. The, um, she used to work in the State Department during the Reagan administration. I, I want to go back and talk just just for a minute about the uh, the book. Um, 
this is a tough uh, book to unpack because there's so much stuff in it. Um, it, at first glance, it looks like a small book and a quick read, but there's an awful lot of information in it, very tightly written to, to cover a lot of different things to make your points about the uh, Supreme Court and its evolution. Um, and, and I just, I, I just wanted to say that, and I wanted to underscore the uh, comment that you'd made, uh, you had alluded to, Reagan and Iran-Contra, and, and that's just one of dozens of episodes in um, American history, uh, some recent and some not so recent, that, uh, that, that you've pulled into this book, and I just, I just wanted to make sure and say that. Now, let's fix the Supreme Court. Okay. <laughs> Right. So, so Reagan, Reagan hired this young lawyer and said, how do we overturn Roe and uh, Brown? And uh, without a constitutional amendment, it takes too long and, you know, it has to go through the states. And uh, this lawyer worked for about a year and, and went back to all the founding documents and the Federalist Papers and the Constitutional Convention. And what he, what he came up with was that Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, which Article 3 lays out the judiciary, uh, says that the Supreme Court shall operate under regulations established by Congress. We've talked about that, you know, the number of members of the court, but also um, may only make rulings within the context of exceptions defined by Congress. And so this young lawyer said, all we would have to do is pass a law with a Republican majority in the House, Senate, and and having Reagan in the White House, pass a law that says that uh, segregation is no longer illegal in the United States and that abortion is now is illegal in the United States. And at the very end of that law, just add one single sentence that says, and this law may not be reviewed by the Supreme Court. And uh, which would, you know, eliminate the possibility of judicial review. Um, he wrote a 29-page memo on this. It was uh, pretty pretty exhaustive. It was uh, widely circulated in the Reagan Justice Department and the Reagan White House. Uh, they debated it. They decided ultimately not to do it because they didn't have, uh, they didn't think they had enough members of the Senate who would go along with it. Uh, it'd probably be subject to a filibuster, and uh, it would be political dynamite. It would be absolutely explosive. I mean, you know, nobody had ever done that before. But there was a broad agreement that it would be entirely within the within the limits of the Constitution. That young lawyer, by the way, uh, his name was John Roberts, and he's now the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, it's, like I said, this is a fascinating collection of historical events and commentary on the Supreme Court and the way it has gotten away from its original intention. It is by New York Times bestselling author Tom Hartman. The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Tom, thank you so much for uh, fitting us in. I I know you're kind of on the run. Oh, my pleasure, Tom. Yeah, I am. (laughs) I I appreciate being on your program. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right. You take care. Seemed like an appropriate time to bring Tom back and and talk about that. That interview was originally uh, pre-pandemic, um, 
when we uh, when we first did that that interview. But coming up in just a few minutes, it, it's Wednesday, which means armchair politics is straight ahead. Mark Everson will be uh, joining our roundtable regulars. Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter should be uh, a pretty interesting conversation. So I hope you'll stick around and enjoy uh, today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Hear ye! Hear ye! The coat's in session. The coat's in session. Now, here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Stop being that fudge. Cause here come the judge. Don't nobody budge. Cause here come the judge. Judge Shorty is presiding today. And he don't take no stuff from nobody. No kind of Hey boy, take off that hat Where do you think you're at? I know where you gon' be If you don't eat my weed I'm here to tell you program, don't you know? 
Go on! Go on, get out of here! <laughs>